Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. This is episode number 61 with our guest, Maggie Kelly. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, guys. Thanks for joining us today. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Do you ever find yourself asking the big question about life? Is this all there is? I know we've all been there at one time or another, and our guest today is no different. Not long after her chronically ill son was born, Maggie Kelly became disillusioned, heartbroken, and aimless. I'm sure so many of us can relate to that. She found herself questioning what her life's purpose is and set out to change her mindset and begin to live a life illuminated. Wow. She has since studied meditation under Deepak Chopra. Really cool. Can't wait to dive into that. And now she owns the beautiful Satsang House Meditation Community in the North County, San Diego area. I am, I'm excited to talk. How are you, Maggie Kelly? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. There's so much here. I want to talk about your first, your time with Deepak Chopra. What did you learn most from that time? Oh, wow. You know, I, um, I started meditating with, uh, through one of Deepak's programs in 2008, I believe, um, or seven. And um, it really was at that point, you just, you just touched on after my son was born, chronically ill, and I really was a lost mm. soul. And I had been living a life of just waiting for the next shoe to drop. Mm. Just when is he going to get sick? When are we going to be in the hospital again? Not really knowing what to do or how to do it. Do it. Um, and being a real novice with the disease. And my son has cystic fibrosis. It's a chronic uh, and progressive life-shortening, primarily lung disease, but it affects all areas of your body that have mucus. So your upper sinuses, your lungs, your kidneys, your liver, your digestion, your reproductive system. So, but primarily the issue is in the lungs. So it's a daily battle really to get the mucus out of his lungs so that he doesn't end up getting sick and hospitalized and causing permanent lung damage. Mm. 
So I was, you know, at that time, I have an, an older child as well, three years older than my son. And so when he was born, she was three. So it was a pretty crazy time. And I just remember just sort of hyperventilating through life. Like every day was just like, okay, what fire needs to be put out and what kind of stress am I going to handle today? And, you know, just surviving. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, you know, waking up in Groundhog's Day and just surviving the day, that same day over and over again. But I know too that I was driven by fear, mm. a lot of fear. And so when I started, I, I just decided, you know, I can't be this kind of parent. I don't want to be this kind of mom. I don't want to live in this kind of fear. I don't want to be so activated all the time. And something has to shift. And I knew that in, that in my world around me, I really couldn't change anything, that it had to come from here. And I had to be the one to make the shift. And I remember having read something that Deepak Chopra had written when I was in college. And I surprisingly still had that book on the shelf. And I pulled the book off the shelf and I looked in the back flap and I realized that his center for well-being is right in my neighborhood. So I put myself into one of Deepak's courses and within every course that Deepak teaches, he starts with teaching you meditation. And so that was my first experience with meditation. And like you just said, I never looked back because once you sort of get the value and how, how much value you can get from just to even a little bit of time every day of meditating, it really does give you a very profound, but kind of subtle shift. And it takes time, right? I mean, you don't get, I have some people come to satsang house for meditation and they think that whatever it is they're going to get from meditation, they're going to get in right now. And they're going to walk out of satsang house with this newfound power and enlightenment or awakening. And it just doesn't happen like that. You know what I say um, on that note, I love that concept because what I've personally realized, especially through embracing daily meditation and not only meditation, that's only one part of my daily life habits that keep me focused and going strong is that in many ways, I see it like I'm in recovery. And really, in so many ways, I am, right? Keeping these negative habits and thoughts and cycles um, at rest requires a recovery standpoint where, like you said, it is about, it's not just one and done or two and done. It's about daily consistent application. Exactly. And you know, I, I, the, the concept of recovery is kind of interesting because when Deepak talks about uh, meditation and the process that unfolds through your time in meditation, he talks about actually remembering you. That really what's happened in our lives is we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that we're spiritual beings having a human experience. It's not the other way around. We're not humans trying to have a spiritual experience. And he even likens it to spiritual Alzheimer's, that we have totally forgotten who we are. And the process of meditation can help remember you, 
return you to a member of society, a member of who you really are, which is profoundly spiritual first. And we're just here for a blip of time on the screen. And really, like you were talking about, you know, what are we here for? Just why am I here? Am I here really to go through each day like a crazy person and just surviving the day in a state of fight and flight on an ongoing basis? Or am I here for some other reason where I can use my gifts and my talents to serve humanity in some way? I love that you said we're here uh, for a blip of time. And what I've realized recently, I'm going to be 45 this year. And for some reason, that number sort of put everything in, into this perspective for me. Uh, like you said, for me, best case scenario, best case, my life is half over. If I, write, if I ride this out to 90, that's a darn good life that nobody can complain about. When somebody passes on at 90, you don't think tragically, oh, how did that happen? 90, that's how it happened, right? You say, wow, what a, what a great life he must have lived. And the way I was going, if I made it to 90, I wouldn't have lived to 90. I would have, you know, made it to 90, vastly different. So no matter how you look at it, my life, best case, is half over. And that's empowering because no matter how, how you look at it, it's, it's gone in a moment and quote unquote, worst case, it can end at any time. And that mm. too keeps me, okay, let me make the most of this and do the best I can. Well, most of us get to our deathbed and look back and say, why didn't I travel with the kids when they were little and create the experiences? Why didn't I jump ship on that job and take that job I really, really wanted? Why didn't I? Mm. Or what kept me from? And if we're lucky, we're, most of us, when we get on our deathbed, we even have that thought. But to awaken means that you're able to ask that question in today's day not on your deathbed because i know i for one do not want to look back on my deathbed and ask myself why didn't i mm. and the reason um i that resonates so much with me is like i was saying uh, i think before we went on the air here my children who i talk about every chance i get because they've been such a strong foundation and pivotal role for me to wake up right i have my 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 beautiful 5 year old daughter my incredible 3 year old son who really are my everything i had no idea i knew in theory that i'd like to be a father one day i'll probably enjoy the role never knew how profoundly um inspirational this whole thing with them would be and really keep me at my best and what i realized is that if I could easily in 20 years go on with the way I was going, seeking approval, desperate, needy, lost, all this stuff, just coming home, trying to do the best I can, knowing how angry, frustrated, and miserable I am, which will then change how they grow up. And then in 20 years, see myself watching my children just the same way I was. And I realized that if I raise my daughter, for example, in that way where she sees her father just seeking the approval of everybody else, uh, that can get very ugly very quickly. And I didn't want to look back and see myself that I did that 
not being able to do anything then, but now I can make all the change and that's, that, that's what I'm living. Uh, and you know, what's beautiful about that story is that you woke up before they grew up, right? Because you, our children, and I get this, like you just said, your children are so inspirational to you to keep you on track and, and you know, keep you at your best self. But not only that, they help you basically magnify every shortcoming that you yourself have, right? So true. So and true. so I see my children as my greatest teachers in life. So true. Especially my son, you know, with what he goes through on a daily basis just to get out the door. I'm in awe of this young man. I really am. I'm in absolute awe. So you... So you must have, so, so you had your three, at the time of your son's birth, you already had your daughter who was three. Um, what, what was your life? Because I love that you said, um, you acknowledged that you were waiting for the other shoe to drop, putting out fires, living in a state of fear and worry. I, I was there too. And that's just, it's so bad on, on, on so many levels, just physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. It, it's, it's so, so terrible. What were you doing in life um, outside of your children? What were you as a person doing uh, in the world at that time? Well, I had given up my job as a marketing executive for HBO hmm. and was a stay-at-home mom. And my job and my focus was the children. And I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be. And then we had this surprise component of chronic illness come into the fray. Mm. And I'm glad that I didn't have a job at that point that I had to leave. Oh, so you had already left corporate world when yes. you got the news. Interesting. What, yes. kind of, what kind of a person were you prior to even his birth? You were just a... Um, a uh, go-getting employee? I was a go, I traveled four days out of five for HBO and I was in sales and marketing and I had a rather large territory and um, I pretty much lived out of a suitcase in a hotel room and um, I didn't have plants or animals because mm -hmm. I was never home to care for them at the time. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, but you know, I was a lot younger and because now my kids are 20 and 17. Oh, wow. Okay. So Yeah. So I was a lot younger. I, had, I, I still have a ton of energy and I'm still a crazy go-getter and I'm, you know, all that. But my energy is put into different places to basically expand um, what I know, what I've learned over the years to others, to mm -hmm. give it away. Yeah. To give it away. I want to get... Um, we're, we're going to dive deeper into all of that um, as we move forward, but I want to take us back for a little bit. I want to learn more about you and how you got here to where you are today. Take us back to the very beginning, if you don't mind. What was Maggie Kelly like as a young child growing up? What was that life like? Well, I'm the youngest of five, mm. and um, my parents were divorced when I was young, when I was four. And ultimately, my, um, my brothers went off to boarding school out east, and I'm from California. And so my sisters and I were living with my mom at the time. And um, my mother decided to go visit Spain 
at one summer and she took me and one of my sisters with her and she ended up staying and she stayed for six, seven years. I can't even remember now, but I was nine at the time that we went and I didn't speak a word of, being, of, of Spanish. And for the first year we were, I was in an English speaking school, but then she decided, my mother decided that it was time for me to learn the language uh, fluently. So she put me in a private Spanish school and within a few months I learned to speak the language fluently because I was young and because I couldn't speak English at school. So at nine years old, your parents are divorced and you're told by your mother, uh, pack a suitcase, we are going to Europe. Pretty much. But it was a summer idea. It wasn't going to be a five-year-long thing. We were oh. going to go for the summer. Oh, okay. But we ended up staying. And how was that scenario? Um, it was fine. I, you know, I had a very deep and beautiful relationship with my grandparents who lived around the corner from us when I was in California. And I think that leaving them was the hardest part. And I didn't see my dad. I never saw my dad. So um, those parts were hard. And I didn't see my siblings. So I think the whole family kind of split off into its own spokes, if you will, mm -hmm. at that time, which was, you know, I don't think when you're nine, I don't think you really know what's going on. It's not until you get a lot older that you look back and go, wow, that was kind of weird. <laughs> that was kind of unusual for a nine to 12 year old kid. Um, so um, what it was like, I mean, at the time for a while, my mother and I and my sister were there. Then my sister left to come back to California and live with my dad and go to high school. And so then it was just mom and I, and then my mother met and fell in love with a guy who happened to be from California, which is so funny. Um, but when my mother got married to this gentleman, I realized something was really weird. And I don't think, again, I think when you're young, you don't really, you're not really sure how to identify stuff. And I just sort of went with it. And it turns out that he was a pretty severe alcoholic, my stepfather. And also um, quite um, emotionally and verbally abusive um, in some pretty insidious ways, especially when you're a young girl starting to go through puberty and, um, you know, thinking about your, your health, your well-being, your development, and kind of confused about all that, those pieces. Um, so that had quite an impact. And, and at the time, it was clear he didn't want me around. Because hmm. a lot of what he said a lot of times, almost on a daily basis, was get lost, Maggie, get lost. Hmm. And they um, ended up renting an apartment next door to their own for me to live in, even though they had a spare room, bedroom in their own apartment. So at 9, 10, 11, I lived in my own apartment next door to my mom and stepfather in Spain. I can't imagine what that does to you. Even looking back on it, who knows how you process that in real time in the moment. But as, as far as you can remember, how did you, how did you process that? How did you spend your time? What did you make of that? 
Well, you know, at the time I was going to the private Spanish school and I had to take a bus from the little village that we lived in to get to school and school started at nine. So I took the bus and it was an hour and a half drive oh, wow. from the village I lived in. So I left the house at seven, seven thirty, and I, and school in Spain goes all day long. And then they have the little two hour siesta in the middle. And because I lived so far away, I didn't go home for siesta like a lot of kids did. Mm. So I stayed on campus with some other kids who couldn't go home during that little two hour block. And we had five course meals for lunch and, you know, it was a full on day. So I was gone from the village I grew up in from 7 a.m. and didn't, school didn't end until 5, so I didn't get home till 7 p.m. So basically, I was not there for 12 hours a day in, on the weekdays. Hmm. So, um, you know, like I said, I think when you're really young, you don't realize this is not normal until yeah. you get to be older and you look back and go, you know, that is just a really strange story. So you... I, so you acclimated and uh, did the best you could. And then I understand some years later in your teens, you had the opportunity to come back to the States. Correct. And I lived with my dad and started high school. And were you sort of, um, I don't know if the word is relieved, but you thought, okay, that was that. Now I'm looking forward here. And, and, and what took your focus at this point? Well, that was odd because I hadn't lived with or seen much of my father in years. Oh, cause they were split from earlier. Yeah. So wow. now I'm living with my dad and my stepmother when I moved back to California and I went to a school really close to home. And my dad is very a very uh, successful businessman, traveled a lot, worked a lot, um, very dear man, very sweet, very kind, um, but very much, a workaholic guy, right? And um, my stepmom was just wonderful. She she really took me under her wing. And this is when I was, you know, freshman in high school, so 14, 14, 15, 16. So that was a huge adjustment because not only was it an adjustment living with my dad and stepmother as opposed to my mom and stepfather, but I was culturally shifted very in a huge way so culturally it was very very different for me as a young teen what um, did you have your thoughts on in the next few years like graduating high school and starting a life of your own well it was expected that you go off to college that wasn't even a conversation to have you mm -hmm. it was just what you did um you know, I think the years in Spain taught me to be extraordinarily independent and very self-sufficient. And it also taught me not to rely on anyone but myself. And um, that's what I did. I just put my nose to the grindstone. I got straight A's in high school. And my father used to say to me, you know, I, I wouldn't dare be hard on you because you're so hard on yourself. Mm. I remember him saying that when I was like 15 or 16. So I think that was a huge impetus, you know, but then I also had that old conversation that was ingrained in my head that, you know, get lost, Maggie. 
No one wants you around. Um, and I remember too, when I used to say things with my stepfather around and sit there and talk with them and he would say, oh, come on, Maggie. Like whatever I had to say wasn't important or wasn't worth listening to or wasn't right or whatever. So I really learned from an early age to just button my lip mm. and to just focus on the task at hand and not really engage socially with much. And so that's who I really was in high school. I was a, a studious, straight-A student that kept to myself. It's so amazing because I can totally relate, and I'm sure so many people listening could also relate to that. Whatever the external circumstance was, we just closed off. For me, um, I took the other route, and I felt a disconnect and isolated in so many ways for various reasons. And the way I, I was not a straight A student, whatever the opposite of that is, <laughs> that was me. Um, so I was never studious, uh, never took to that road. So what I did is I, I tried to become the outgoing funny man trying to just get attention and approval that way by, by putting on the happy face and say, hey, like me, like me, because I needed it. And uh, so, so it, it shows up in different ways, as you can see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My brother was like that. Yeah. Mr. Funny Man. He still is to a certain degree today. Sure. And he is hysterically funny. But I do think that my, I don't know because I've never had this conversation with my brother, but um, I'm going to now that you brought that up. Which part of? Um, the part about, um, um, you know, the persona we adopt to survive. Yeah. Right. Because really it's just a survival mechanism. There it is. Everything we do is for a reason of survival. And when you start looking at it, like you said, you became studious to sort of just get it done when I didn't. I needed the external validation um, that way. Right, right. Yeah. So what did you do in college? What were you looking to do or become? A journalist. Journalist, a photojournalist. My biggest dream was to become um, a photographer for the National Geographic. Oh, cool. And be a photojournalist. Um, and I just, I took a couple different turns. I ended up graduating in journalism, but I also graduated with a Spanish degree because obviously I spoke fluent Spanish. Mm. So um, I did some writing for a Spanish paper in college. And then I, um, almost went to work for the Miami Herald um, because they wanted a bilingual reporter. And then I took a different turn. I ended up in Washington, DC. I worked for the Washington Post for a little bit, did not write for them. I was in production oh, wow. and then ended up in marketing. In your, in your early 20s, when you're out on your own and, and in college and pursuing all of that, what was your relationship like with both sides of your family, your, your father's side and your mother's side at this point? You know, I, wow, no one's ever asked me that question. Um, and I think it was just this constant and chronic background conversation of you don't fit in this family. Hmm. You just don't fit. Because I remember when I was four years old, this is one of those, you know, defining moments, right? 
I'm the youngest of five. So when I was four, my brother must have been 10. And then there's three kids in between. And they were all sitting on top of my parents' king size bed watching a movie or something. And I walked in to the room and my oldest brother said, what are you doing here? You don't, my last name is Kelly. You don't look like a Kelly. You don't sound like a Kelly. You don't even smell like a Kelly. You don't fit in this family. And then he said, go down the hall and look at the cabinet that has all the baby books in it. You don't have one. You were adopted. Now, this is funny man, brother, right? He thought he was so funny. And everybody else was sort of looking at him. And at that, that was that defining moment that said to me, you don't fit in this family. You don't belong here and you're never going to fit in this family. And it's funny because my mother never knew that story until I was in my mid-20s. And she was just mortified hmm. that my brother had said this. And of course, I understand he was joking. But when you're four, I went down the hall to look in the cabinet, right? I searched for the baby book that wasn't there. And in my 20s, my mom said, well, I, you were the youngest of five. I didn't have time to put a baby book together. She had, she had four kids in diapers at one time for a while. We're only six and a half years apart. There's five children oh. in six and a half years. She had a child every year. Pretty much. Pretty much. My sisters are called Irish twins yeah, because sure. they're only 11 months apart. Wow. So my mom had a baby and two months later she got pregnant again. So, you know, I totally get the reality of the you don't belong, you don't fit in this family, the baby book thing. And my mother's side where she was just trying to survive her day of diapers, right? Mm -hmm. I totally get that intellectually as a human being and as a grown woman, right? But when you're tiny and when you're tr just sort of feeling it out, no doubt anyone listening can relate to this story as something might have happened to you as a young child. Somebody said something. Somebody did something. Something happened in your life to break your sense of belonging. Mm. And you carried that with you into your world and your life. And you may, to some degree, continue to carry that with you today. And it's even though you, it's in the background, and you think you might have gotten past it and you can intellectualize it like I just told you I did, it doesn't make a difference because that conversation is always going to be in the background. So really the key is, do you notice when that conversation comes to the forefront? And when you notice it, what do you do with it? Are you going to act it out in the old way, in the old behaviors? Or are you going to notice it? And in, and in Buddhism, they call it the third moment where you feel the emotion arising, you notice and can identify what that emotion or that feeling is. And right before there's a reaction or a response, you have an opportunity in the third moment to choose. Am I going to choose to react in my normal way of being, in my normal reactivity? Or am I going to just pause, insert the pause, and choose something different. And that's the third moment that gives me the defining moment to make that choice. But you can't make that choice unless you're awake. Mm. 
And yeah. most of us are going through life completely unconscious, completely unconscious because we're in that fight and flight mode that we talked about. Just trying to get through the day, pay the bills, answer the phone calls, return the emails, text 400 people, maybe watch too much of CNN or whatever <coughs> it is that we do. Um, we're not thinking about that third moment. We're not stopping to pause long enough to even notice where I'm coming from, right? So much incredible stuff there. Um, I, I, I love the part of uh, becoming aware or awakened uh, because that's what I've become aware about is, is this whole sense of self-awareness and the importance of that and do anything you can to strategically and deliberately gain a sense of self-awareness so you know how you're reacting, what you're feeling in any given moment so you can do the work that is required to put an end to those unwanted outbursts and reactions. And I love that you said that there's always, there's always um, probably looking back something that uh, challenged or questioned or looked to break our sense of belonging um, growing up. And I think even, even as adults, we, we carry that. And I know personally, that's all it was, right? We just want a sense of belonging and we look externally for that validation and we give that power to anybody and everybody else who will make us feel like we belong and that's so opposite of what really needs to be done where we 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 ask of anybody hey can you give me the sense of belonging can you validate me and looking back on who i gave that power to it's so ironically funny because these aren't, these aren't good people. These aren't people that I admire, like, look up to, want to participate in life with, but you just don't either know any better or have any other opportunity. So how, how does that work begin to, to gain a sense of your own belonging? Well, I think you asked me, the very first question you asked me, you know, what did you gain from your experience with Deepak? And that whole conversation about remembering myself, returning your state, yourself into a state of homeostasis in body, mind, and spirit. Most of us are, you know, we're pretty good about, especially in California, eating properly and getting out to exercise and taking great care of our bodies for the most part, right? And getting out to the gym and all of that. Um, but how many of us really stop? For a moment and reconnect with our innermost selves and we can't do that because you just touched on it you know you, we give our power away thinking that the external is where we can find happiness and that's one of the biggest misperceptions of reality right I'm not gonna find happiness in that new car or with a PhD behind my name or marrying that particular guy that's not gonna make me happy and I think if we notice our own behavior and how we're always grasping and clinging and striving for the what's next, or I need to have the, the more, the different, and the better, right? Mm. It's, my life gets run by more, different, and better. If I had more of this, or if things look different, or if this was better, 
I'd be happy. Well, real happiness can't be attained out there. But the problem is, is that we are consumed by a commercial society that surrounds us to the point where we are bombarded with messages that say, you need this to be happy. There's not messages on the television that say, go find time to sit in nature for 10 minutes and reconnect to you. Listen to the internal dialogue that's driving your show. Nobody's out there saying that to you because we're all, we all have all, unfortunately, not all, but a lot of us have bought in hook, line and sinker to this idea of more different and better is going to make me happy. When in fact, your happiness resides only in here. You have, we have anything and everything we need to be fully functioning, happy, homeostatic people in body, mind, and spirit right here inside us. If we just stop long enough, stop the striving and the grasping and the clinging and looking out there for the answer, because the answer's not there. Oh, and I love this because Deepak says this anytime you are with him. You don't need to ask me that question. The answers are all inside you, right? So we think that we got to ask somebody else. We just have to ask this person right here. Yeah. And the way I can relate to that is I, all of my life, I would... I would question, um, what do I have to do? How come people aren't responding? But I knew what I wasn't doing. I would just, you know, put on this air of confusion to keep myself safe and protected so I can continue to get what I apparently wanted, which was this disconnect because I wasn't feeling strong enough or confident enough, whatever those words are, to step up, step into myself and say, what I knew all along are my strengths and my abilities and my things that I should be, could be doing, which helped create this brand and this road I'm on to now say, F that noise, right? I'm doing it. I'm doing what I've always known. Like you said, Deepak says, you don't have to ask me that question. So often we know the answer. We just want to hear it from somebody else, validate, or we just want to get more clarity. But you know, you know so much. But, but going back to some of the questions you asked me earlier about, you know, the part of what shaped me, right? If you just take me as an example, right? I was shaped by this idea that you don't belong to the family. What you have to say isn't important and nobody wants to hear it. And by the way, get lost. Mm. So when you grow up inside of that conversation and you think that's what's going on, you think that's who you are, it's very difficult to hear what you just said. It's oh. hard to hear. I'm a strong woman. I've got my act together. I'm Correct. organized. I'm a businesswoman. I'm, I'm brilliant. I'm whatever. Right. I'm not the problem. They're the, it's not about me. Right. And so I love this idea of F that noise because it really is about effing that noise. Right. But it's also that extra layer deeper, right? Where mm -hmm. you can get still with yourself 
and ask yourself the really profound questions that nobody ever asks, which is, who are you? What do you want? Whether it's spiritual, financial, emotional, physical, have you, do we ask ourselves that? How am I best suited to use my gifts and talents to serve humanity? Hmm. And what am I, yeah, and what am I grateful for? I love it. Too often, instead of asking, what do I want? We ask ourselves, what is somebody else going to think? And then that brings us down the rabbit hole. What is somebody else going to think about this? How is this going to look? What are people going to say? Can't ask yourself those questions. Well, think about that, right? If you go back to my example, right? The not belonging, don't talk because nobody's listening. And by the way, get lost, right? Why would I come into my own power? How? Yeah. How That's a great would question. I be able to come into my own power if those are the conversations in the background gr- driving my show every day? Mm-hmm. Maybe, consciously, maybe I'm conscious of them, maybe I'm not. But that's the key, right? Is mm-hmm. becoming conscious, finding that place where you can insert the pause and identify that third moment and then choose. Choose powerfully which direction you're going to go in mm-hmm. because you're aware and you're conscious that these are the conversations in the background. Exactly. Uh, I want to take us to the birth of your son because uh, we know now we have this, this, this great picture of who you are, where you came from, where you are today, but now this middle ground. So life is... is is for you in this, you know, seemingly chaotic time, just as life would have it. Um, you know, you're, you're a working woman, things are going along. Now you get the diagnosis. How do you process this? Wow. Um, you know, this was another giant defining moment, right? In my life. I'm sure all of us have more than one. Um, and I was completely lost. I, this is where I started to notice that internally, because I had grown up so self-sufficient and so independent, and I got this, I don't need anybody, because I, God forbid I would want to need anybody, right? And have them shut down and tell me to get lost, right? So I had learned at an early age that I don't need anybody. I got this. And that's how I started to do this with my son. I got this. I don't need any help. I'm not going to reach out. I got it. I'm good. We're good. And inside, I was falling apart because I would hold this little baby infant and just be so sad because I know the process of cystic fibrosis is chronic. It's progressive. It's life shortening. And there's no cure. Hmm. And at the time he was born, the average life expectancy was 37. And so my head as a new, as a mom with this little infant is just, I'm just, my heart was just dying that I would watch this young boy, this little baby grow up and die before me. And the idea that he may not have children and he may not go to college and he may not um, live a long life inside ripped me apart. It's, I can only describe it as like a living grief. 
So anyone who's ever lost someone that they love, they understand grief. It comes in waves and you can't, can't predict it. And it's, it just hits you. Maybe when you're driving on the freeway, you know, it hits you in the shower, it hits you wherever. But I describe this experience early on, no longer, but early on as a living grief because this child is with you but you're grieving all of the pictures you have of what your child's going to grow up to be, what their future's going to look like. Any parent out there knows what I'm talking about. You know, you have a certain idea in your head that they're going to grow up and be fine and fly off to college and you do your thing while they're young and off they go. And that's the, the whole plan. And you become a grandparent and life goes on the picket fence and the whole perception took me a heck of a long time to get this part about, I'm not in charge. I'm not in control of how this goes down, that I can't cure this boy. And I'm his mom, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm supposed to know what to do. I'm supposed to have the right questions to ask the doctor every time we see him. I'm supposed to be able to keep him out of the hospital. Is that I'm a liberating feeling at this point? It was when I got it. It took me a while to get it. And this is, this is me going into meditation at this point and, and spending a few years in meditation asking those questions. Who are you? What do you want? How are you supposed to, not supposed to, how do you want to use your gifts and talents to serve humanity? To get outside my own self and realize that, first of all, this boy is not mine. He's on loan to me. And I only get him for as long as I get him. Mm. And whether it's that blip that we, you and I get to 90 or his blip is 25. He's only here for a blip and so am I. And what there is for me to do is suit up and show up and do the very best that I can. And that's all there is to do. I can't cure him. I can't change it. All I can do is fill the prescriptions, get on the phone with the insurance company, make sure he does his lung treatments, take him to the doctor every three months, sit by his bedside when he's in the hospital, do what there is to do. And you would do for your own children, right? So my story is not any different. It just has a little twist, right? that I have to let go. I have to let go of being in control and thinking that I had the answers. And that's the part that was liberating because I was holding on so tight to I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm supposed to know. I was like holding on like this death grip for dear life. And it just dawned on me one day and just like, like hit over the head, like, oh, dummy you dummy you thought you were going to control this you thought you were in charge and i did just what you're doing i laughed i laughed at myself when i got it it was like bang major epiphany you dummy all there is for you to do is let go and just you know i think that was the most liberating moment. And this is what I said at the beginning that my children like yours and anyone out there is your children are your greatest teachers. 
in whatever form it looks like. It doesn't have to look like chronic incurable disease. It can just look like who you are on the sidelines of their soccer game. Are you cheering them on to just go for the throat and win at all costs and fighting with the other parents? Like those silly things we see on the news and parents having fist fights over that. Are you the kind of parent that is supportive and loving of every child on the field, including your own? You know, so it doesn't matter. You don't have to have chronic illness in your life. And this story, it's who am I? Who am I in the world? You know, do I want to be this person that is who I was, which was angry and pissed off and yelling at the doctors, yelling at the kids, even yelling at the dog because I was driven by fear, a hundred forms of fear in just trying to control and manage something that I had no control over whatsoever. Or do you want to step back and, and just let it unfold and let go and just be on the ride and be aware on the ride? Just be aware. That's the key. It's so beautiful, everything you said. And something that uh, stuck with me for um, many years on that front is um, I've always heard the, the phrase, if somebody told you that you had a chronic illness and you were only to live so-and-so, would you live your life differently? And invariably, we all say yes. And then the punchline is, well, you do. It's called life. It's going to end for all of us at any given moment. So live that way. So we all do have the same, same outcome. Well, part of it is I think many of us have a fear of death. Okay. And so that is, that's the other piece. I mean, you and I could sit here and talk for hours, but I'll just say this one thing. That we think that everything's permanent. There you go. We think that our lives are permanent. We think that joy is permanent. Or if we're on that flip side, we think the sadness is permanent. And the thing is, is nothing's permanent. Nothing is permanent. Whether it's joy or sorrow or this particular job or that child or my life, nothing is permanent. And if we can come to the party with a new concept of reality of that nothing is permanent, then we don't fear death. You can't fear death when you are really understand that I'm not going to outlive life. <laughs> we're, we're, none of us are getting out of here alive. And I think this notion that it's permanent, that it's all permanent, how much money I have in the bank or how poor I am or this chronic illness or whatever, when we're stuck in the mindset that it's all permanent, we can't see possibility in the here and now. It's impossible to see possibility when you feel stuck. So that's another big piece of it, I think. Yeah. Like you said, we can certainly talk for hours so much um, that we, you know, we could unravel. I want to ask you this, looking, looking back on a younger version of yourself, much younger version, what advice would you give that person? 
you know, I, I, looking back at my life, I wouldn't give up any one of those experiences from the get lost Maggie to the Spain, to the struggles, the trials, the tribulations, the real pain and sorrow over my son and that piece of getting past it to live my life illuminated today. I wouldn't give, give away any of that. What I would say, and God, you know, if I was a teenager today or in my 20s, 30s, or 40s today, I would say, wake up, wake up sooner, wake up, wake up now, start living your life consciously. Because really, look at the world today, look at the threat of nuclear weapons, the social issues that our country and around the world are facing, the climate change, polluting the oceans. Every single one of us has a responsibility inside of all of these issues because we are part of a collective consciousness. I'm not in it alone. I'm not living my life by myself. I am you and you are me. I just show up in a different body, right? And that's the other misperception of reality is we think we're separate from everyone else. We feel isolated. We're not separate. And this goes beyond isolated. This goes on to, I am, you know, I deserve it. This is about me. I'm separate from you. And what I do and what I say doesn't affect you. And that's just a total misperception of reality. Everything I do affects you. Every choice I make, everything I do makes a difference to you. Everything I do, whether I'm driving the gas hog car, I'm throwing a cigarette butt in the gutter, I'm abusing my animals, I am not paying attention to my child, and I'm spending hours on the internet watching porn or playing video games. If we walk around thinking that our personal actions have no effect on our collective consciousness, we're going to be in trouble. And you can already see it. You can already see it. There's no accidents that who's in power is who's in power because our collective consciousness put those people in power. And without being political whatsoever, it's not about that. It's about that I am part of the bigger universe. And we think we are not. We think we're living this life all by ourselves. It's just about me. We're, we're very self, self-motivated. And we need to wake up. We need to wake up sooner. We need to wake up now. <laughs> Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because... I am like you are and like everyone listening, we're part of the collective consciousness. What I do affects you. If I don't water the flower, it won't bloom. I have two choices. In my ground state, I have the seeds of unhappiness and violence and pain and sorrow and anger and jealousy, but I also have the seeds of love and joy and happiness and forgiveness and compassion. Which seeds do you want to water? 
which seeds do you want to water? And really, it comes down to that. And that's that third moment. If I'm about to yell at my son, I have an opportunity to choose which seeds I'm going to water in that very moment. So true. And all we have is this moment. So true. This one and this one and this one. And, you know, you got me going now. <laughs> well, let's continue the questioning. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways? great question i love this i am not at all religious i am spiritual i believe that all religions have the very same fundamental purpose bring compassion and love and humanity to one another that all religions are pretty much the same that it doesn't matter if you're hindu or buddhist or jewish or muslim or catholic it doesn't matter because the basic premise is that we all come together as one. And that's what this conversation is about, right? And I get this a lot because people sort of get a little wiggy about coming to meditation because they think it's somehow, I'm, I'm going to be religious with them. Meditation isn't about being religious. It's a spiritual practice to bring you back to awaken to your innermost self and your innermost dreams and desires and wake you up to realize that you are part of this greater global consciousness and it's up to each one of us to make a difference. Hmm. What do you believe happens when it's all over, when our time here on earth comes to an end? I believe, personally, my personal view is of reincarnation. I believe that I will come back to live this life to continue learning and waking up until I reach that state of enlightenment. That's just my personal belief. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't, I, I believe that we do all come back. Amazing. I will leave you with this final question. Maggie Kelly, how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> I'd like to be remembered as somebody who's fully present. Fully present and aware and conscious living, trying their best to live each moment by moment and awake enough to realize when I fall, because I'm human, I make mistakes. There are times I am going to yell at my son. There are times where I am going to kick the dog out of the house. There's going to be times where I'm not as kind as I want to be. And I just pray to God that I notice those times and I shift myself out of that. So I just want to live a life fully conscious and awake. I got to say, this whole conversation, the word beautiful comes to mind. It is just beautiful to, uh, to listen to, to be with you, um, share. On, I, I can't believe you just said that. I think we said that at the same time. This is beautiful. Um, and that that word just, just, just popped in. Um, it's amazing. So, so thank you, um, Maggie, for, for being this beautiful persona, for showing up openly, for being you. What an extraordinary life you continue to lead. I know our paths have just crossed for the first time, and we will absolutely have, have many more crossings and dialogues going forward. Thank you kindly for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure getting to know you too. And I appreciate your time. Thank you.
And thank you everybody who is tuning in either to the uh, recording or the live broadcast here in the Facebook group. Thank you for spending your time. It means everything. If you got anything out of this, take one step forward and put something good into the world. Take one small action and do extraordinary work. We're going to have another great episode for you. Not too far behind. Until we do, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.